This is our class, Get a Life. I'll remind you as to what that is about in just a moment, but for it, you need some notes. If you'll turn to page 14, we're actually going to, we left off on page 16, but I just want to point something out on page 14 in a moment. But before we get into the notes, welcome everyone. And I want to run through three announcements of some things that are coming up as quickly as I can. One is this Saturday at 10 a.m. is our next Newcomer's Brunch at our house. We do those three times a year at our house, and we would love to have you come if you've never been to one of our brunches. And if you've been here for even for a while, but the scheduling hasn't worked for you to attend one of the previous brunches, then consider yourself a newcomer. But we've got to know today if you're coming. So if you would let the folks at the Information Center desk know that you would like to attend, they'll put your name on the list so that we know who's coming, how much food to make, and they will give you a map to our house, a reminder of what time uh, it is, and our phone number on there in case something comes up and you're not able to attend. So if you would like to attend, let them know before you leave today at the Information Center. That's this Saturday's brunch at 10 o'clock. And then we have a family event two weeks from yesterday on the 12th, and that's bowling from 1 to 3 at Woodhaven Lanes. You have to get tickets for that. Those tickets are available at the Resource Center. That's out the back door and across the hallway. Uh, Purchase those at $7 each, two games, and shoe rental is what the $7 gets you. $28 maximum per family. So if you have more than four in your family, then, uh, then maximum is 28. Three weeks from today is our next baptism, and it is getting perilously close for those of you who have been thinking about seeing me about baptism to the deadline. You've got to really let me know today if you're going to uh, interview for baptism. And to get that process started, you need to stop at the information center desk and get a one-page application, fill that out, turn that in to them. They'll get it to me. I'll contact you, and we'll go from there. All right, that covers our announcements. Page 14, I'll allude to something on page 14, and then we'll pick up where we left off on page 16 in a moment. But this is our series, Get a Life, and the idea here is to help us understand the purpose that God has for us to carry out, and then to try to fit our lives around that purpose. I'm not going to review then much about what we've talked about in the previous weeks. If you've not been able to be here, all of those messages, like all of our messages, are recorded on our website. You have the notes here, so you'll be able to listen to that and follow along to catch up. But briefly, we have seen that the general purpose that God has at all times and at all places is his own glory. That God's purpose for us is the pursuit of his glory and for us to glorify him. But that raises the question, what is God's glory? God's glory is the display of his character and our response to that display in praise to God. That is sometimes called intrinsic glory. Intrinsic glory is God's character, who he is simply because he is God. Intrinsic glory. But then there is ascriptive glory, that is, praise, glory that we ascribe to God because of who he is. So God displays his glory in his creation, in his world, in his acts, in his word. And when that glory is displayed, our response is to be praise, ascribing glory to God. And God desires and God deserves to be praised, to be worshipped, to be glorified by all of his creatures. 
And we have seen in previous weeks that as you look at the very end of human history, in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you look at chapter 5 and where the Apostle John is given a glimpse of what the future will be, there is this universal worship of God taking place from people of every tribe and tongue and nation. So God's purpose of universal worship, universal glory, will be achieved, but we're in between. He created us for that. That's going to be achieved, but in the meantime, we're here. And so how does does that happen? This universal worship that God desires and deserves requires a worldwide mission. And that's why Jesus, in his final words to his first followers before he ascended back to the Father, said, here's the mission I'm giving you. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's because his purpose is still this universal worship, glory by all of his creatures, but that requires this now worldwide, worldwide mission. And the question for us then as we try to get a life is how does that happen? If that's God's purpose, if his purpose is his glory and his glory is to spread his fame throughout his world and he's given us this mission to carry out, how is specifically the mission to be carried out. And we've seen that God's glory, he has chosen to achieve that glory different ways at different times in human history. And the Bible word for that is dispensation. And we saw last week the Greek word that's translated dispensation is oikonomos, oikosanamos, house order, house rule, house law is the way that can be translated. So a dispensation is a particular house order, house law that God has instituted for his world in order for him to receive glory. And he's done that at different ways at different times. You know, at the very beginning of human history, it's different than it is now. You had two people in a garden. There were designed to to be more people in that garden, to be fruitful and multiply, but they got kicked out of the garden. Why? Because they Because they sinned. But they had two special trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And that's not something you and I mess with. We don't have that. Different house order, different arrangement. God instituted his law. And God received glory through the nation of Israel and people carrying out the dictates of his law. We're not under the law anymore, the Bible teaches very directly. So what what dispensation are we in now? And that's why I ask you to turn... Back to page uh, 14, because on page 14, I have listed for you there a lengthy portion of Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, you see in the middle of that page, says, Surely you have heard about the administration. And we've got administration underlined there because that's the word that if you have a King James Version, says dispensation. So you could write that in. Surely you've heard about the dispensation of God's grace. That's oikonomos there which was given to me, Paul, who wrote it, for you. And then we saw last week, that is, he says, the mystery made known to me by revelation. This mystery is something that didn't exist before, but has now been made known. And you go further down, you find that that mystery is the beginning of something called the church. So that if you were asked, well, then what dispensation are we in now? How has God ordered his world for him to receive glory now? It would be the dispensation of the church. 
And if you look further down in that passage, then we have underlined for you what is verse 10, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So if I want to get a life and you want to get a life, it means that I need to know the purpose for which God has me here, has you here. And that purpose is God's glory, but his glory is being achieved by his house order, his house rules, namely through his church. And that's why Ephesians 3 then ends toward the bottom of page 14 with these famous two verses, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church. So where's the action if you want to get a life? The action is, is, is the church. The church is not then something that you or I are to be tangentially related to, but rather it is central to what God is doing in his world. Now that brings us to page 16. If you go to page 16, because last week we saw the beginning of the mission that Jesus gave to his first followers, and we saw that that started, that began in Acts chapter 2 on something called the Day of Pentecost. But at the very same time that the mission was launched, not coincidentally, but purposely, the church began as well. Both the Great Commission and the church started at precisely the same time. Middle of page 16. The biblical mission is launched. And we say there the beginnings of the church and the mission, the Great Commission, are parallel. And you see that the mission was starting at this precise time because of that passage that we have listed for you there, Acts 2, 37 and 38. In it, Peter, who spoke those words, stood up and explained the phenomenon that was taking place on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he said, this is what you're to do. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Those three things. Repent, baptism, and forgiveness of sins. And all three of those elements are part of the great commission that Jesus had given. Jesus said that I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is recorded as giving the Great Commission, he says the content of the message that's going to be preached to all nations is going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. So you've got all three of those, baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins, all in this one verse. The mission started right there. But the church started there as well. Now we're going to see in a minute how it is we know that the church started at the same time. But bottom of page 16. For now, please note that the church is central to the mission. The church is central to the mission. So if Jesus has given us a mission to carry out, and he has, and the church is central to it, then again, that's the, the church is where the action is. But that's hard for a lot of us to get our minds around and our hearts around. That I and you are to be intimately related to the church and actively involved in the mission that the church is carrying out. And that's the purpose for our lives, that we are to fit ourselves around. It's hard for us to do that, though, partly because of what we say at the bottom of page um, 16. The hyper-independence valued in American culture is sometimes emulated by Christians. It results in a disregard for the corporate nature of God's plan. Notice that footnote, corporate. We don't mean a corporation like a business. We mean corporate as in corpus, body. 
that is us together. So our individualism results in us often disregarding the collective nature, the congregational nature of God's plan for the mission. But at the heart of God's plan for the mission is what some call the primacy, the priority of the local church. Now, I'd like to I'd like to show you that in just one way. And then we're going to see on the next page that indeed the church began at the same time as the as the mission. But this idea of the centrality of the church I mean, is the church really such a big deal. The local church, is it really that big a deal? So my answer is, yep. And, I'll, and for a few pages, I'll give you some more. Yep. Uh, to prove that. But one place that I think shows that is a passage in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. If you don't have your Bible, then just you can trust that I'm actually reading it from the Bible. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, 14. And here's what it says. Although I... Paul, who wrote this letter to a guy named Timothy, his protege in the ministry, he says, although I, Paul, hope to come to you, Timothy, soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. All right. So I'm writing you this stuff, says he, so that you, Timothy, will know how people are to conduct themselves, how affairs are to be carried out in God's household that he also refers to as the church of the living God and the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, that raises a question. What church are we talking about then here? What church is being addressed? Is it uh, one or the other of the two aspects of the church that are given in the New Testament? And they are these. Sometimes you'll read the word church in your New Testament and it refers to what's sometimes called the universal church. The body of Christ, capital B. Now, What is that? Well, the universal church is everybody who belongs to Christ, everybody who has a relationship with Christ, everybody who's born again, everybody who's saved, all of these synonyms that we use for a Christian. Everybody who's truly a Christian and belongs to the family of God, has been adopted into his family, all of those people, wherever they're located, whatever their race, race, ethnicity, and I might add denomination. The body of Christ is trans all of that. And it, and it crosses all of that. But all of the people who truly are regenerate, born again, belong to God, are part of the body of Christ. And there are places in your New Testament where the, the word church is used of that. Now, there are a handful. There's about nine or ten where the Bible refers to the universal church, everybody who belongs to Christ. But it's a real and very important teaching in Scripture. But most of the time when the word church is used in your English Bible, most of the time it's not referring to the body of Christ, capital B, the universal church, everybody who belongs to Christ throughout the world, wherever they are uh, and whatever church they're in, but rather refers to the 
local assembly of believers. When you see the word church, the overwhelming majority of the time, in your New Testament, it's referring to a local assembly of believers. Now, how do you know if it's the one or the other? Well, it's the the same way you always know what a word means. Context determines meaning. And that's a good interpretive principle for you to always remember. Context determines meaning. You know, if you look up a word in the dictionary, most often there'll be more than one possible definition for that word, right? There'll be two or four or five. But all that entry in the dictionary is telling you is that in some context, it means this. And so what we're saying biblically is the word church in some context means the universal church and in other contexts means the local and its context that determines which. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 then. Which one are we talking about? You know, as you have these lofty terms in verse 15, God's household, the church of the living God, and the pillar and the foundation of the truth, surely that can't be talking about this ragtag bunch. But lo and behold, the context is most definitely referring to the local assembly of believers. Now, how do we know this? Verse 14 says, I, Paul, am writing these things to you. What things? Verse 14 is summarizing, saying, okay, this is the reason I'm giving you these instructions, Timothy. What instructions? Well, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 1, most of your Bibles will have a heading starting chapter 2. Mine has a heading that says instructions on worship at the top of chapter 2. So this is part of the instructions that he's referring to now in chapter 3 and verse 14 that I'm giving to you so that people will know how to conduct themselves. And part of that set of instructions is instructions on worship. And chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. So this is how to this is how to pray in the worship service of the assembled church. He's giving instructions for that. That's why that heading in my Bible says instructions for worship. Then there's the, the question of what about the participation of men and women? How do that how do those relate? What about the participation of ladies in the public worship of the church? And verses nine through uh, 9 through 14, deal, excuse me, 15, deal with that. The end of chapter 2. And then that brings you to chapter 3. And the beginning of chapter 3, many of you know how chapter 3 and verse 1 of 1 Timothy starts. Some of you have it in front of you. But if anyone desires, this is how it starts. If anyone desires the office of an overseer, and that's a synonym for a pastor, an elder, If anyone desires to be a pastor, he desires a noble task. And then verse 2 says, Now an overseer, a pastor, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. And it goes all the way down to verse 7, giving the qualifications for someone who would be a pastor, elder, overseer in the church. And then when you come to verse 8, In verse 8, you have qualifications for other leaders in the church, deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be the husband of but one wife, and it gives qualifications for them. 
when you get to verse 11 in chapter 3, it says, likewise, their wives, the deacon's wives. Here's the qualifications for them. And then it picks up again in verse 12 with deacons again, 12 and 13. And that brings you full circle to where we started. Chapter 3 and verse 14. I am writing you these instructions so that you will know how people are to conduct themselves in. All right. These instructions, what were they? How to worship when you're assembled together. Who is it that you're to select to be leaders within your assembly? The context is the local assembly. And I'm writing you these instructions, Timothy. And by the way, who's Timothy? A pastor of a local assembly in Ephesus, city of Ephesus. I'm writing you, Pastor Timothy, so that you'll know how what things ought to go, how they ought to be conducted in God's household. The church of the living God and the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So far from the church being something I just do on Sunday. The church is central to what God is doing in his world. It's his household. The local church is his household. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Church of the living God. So if you turn to page 17 then in your notes. The primacy of the local church then is seen in a number of ways. The priority of the local church is seen in places like 1 Timothy 3.15, but also page 17, in the fact that it is the distinctive element of this age. And that's just a fancy way of saying what I said earlier, that the church is the central institution in this dispensation, God's house order, God's house rule. And it began at the same time as the Great Commission. We say here on page 17, in Acts chapter 2, the current age was launched with the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit was given to establish the church and to empower the church for service. That is called spirit baptism, and it happened for the first time. Spirit baptism happened for the very first time in human history. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. And that is, as we've seen, Precisely the same time that the Great Commission started. Now, what's spirit baptism got to do with the beginning of the church? We have listed for you there, if you just look uh, about a third of the way down, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Which says we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, the church. So what does spirit baptism do? It makes you a part of the church, capital B, the universal church that I just talked about earlier. So when you come to Christ, you receive his spirit. Romans chapter 8 says, if you have not the spirit, you do not belong to Christ. I grew up Pentecostal. Some, most of you know that. And in my Pentecostal church, um, if you didn't speak in tongues, you didn't have the spirit. Which then, by extension, means if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Right? Because if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ, says Romans chapter 8. So it's a, it's a false notion that, that many people have. Everybody who has come to Christ, has been born again, 
has the spirit of God. They are baptized by God's spirit. They're given his spirit and they are made part of his body, the church. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, that passage says. But the first time that ever happened was on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, how do we know it was the first time it ever happened? Well, one, if you just read through your Bible chronologically, you'll, you'll get that. But let me make it simpler. You have this phenomenon occur in Acts chapter 2 that is called spirit baptism. But we're given some time markers in the book of Acts about that show us this is the first time it ever happened. The first time marker is given to you on page 17. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. Before this happens, just days before it happens, and the day of Pentecost takes place and the Spirit baptizes the people there, before that happens, Jesus said this, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Spirit baptism, when you see baptism, there are times in your Bible where it's not water like 1 Corinthians 12. And and Jesus is making this distinction, isn't he? John baptized with water. But this is going to be a baptism without water. Spirit baptism. But it's going to happen in a few days. It hasn't happened yet. But you can take it further than that, knowing that it hadn't happened yet. Because then the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, is when it does happen on the day of Pentecost. Peter is the one who stands up and speaks and explains what has happened. And then sometime later, the same Peter is told by God, I want you to go to the home of a Gentile. And I want you to give him the gospel. (laughs) Well, that took a little bit of doing for Peter to be sent to the home of a Gentile. This is at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's all Jews in Jerusalem. And all the apostles are Jews, and Jesus was a Jew. you know. And so up to this time, up to this dispensation, up to the starting of the church and the body of Christ, it's all focused on Jews and Israel. But now Peter is told in uh, Acts chapter 10, I want you to go to the home of a, a man named Cornelius, and I want you to give him the gospel. And he's a Gentile. And in order to motivate Peter, <laughs> he's given a vision. And God gives this vision to him of a sheet with four corners representing the four corners of the earth. And that sheet is filled with all kinds of animals, including animals that in the first part of your Bible had been considered unclean. And and God says to Peter, now with the church, these animals are no longer unclean. Those Gentile dogs that you used to call, you can now go give the gospel to Because I've got this worldwide body, the church. And so Peter goes. And he gives the the gospel and, and they gladly receive it. Cornelius and his house. And here's what Peter reports about that incident. You see it listed there in Acts 11. He says, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us. And then notice this phrase, at the beginning. So in Acts 1, Jesus says this isn't going to happen for a few days. It hadn't happened yet in Acts 1. It happens in Acts 2, and then Peter says, these guys at Cornelius' house experienced the same thing we did at the, what? At the beginning. 
So where did this first occur? It occurred at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And spirit baptism creates the church. So you've got the church created in Acts 2. You've got the mission launched in Acts 2. And as we saw last week on page 15, Luke then, who wrote the book of Acts, gives seven progress reports as the mission goes forward hand-in-hand with the expanse of the church. So you don't have the mission without the church. And there should never be a church that's not focused on the mission. So you have the outline of the book of Acts as another proof, middle of page 17. Chapter 1 and verse 8 commissioned the church to carry out the mission in ever-widening circles. It says in chapter 1 and verse 8, records Jesus as saying, you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That commissioned the church to carry out the mission in ever-widening circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, finally extending the mission to the far reaches of the world. These geographical locations constitute the outline of the book of Acts. So you you have that starting it. You have the church beginning and the mission starting in Acts chapter 2. And from there on, for the next 26 chapters, what you have documented is the expanse of the church starting in Jerusalem, then to the outer regions in Judea and Samaria, and then to beyond that. That's why we say it's... That verse is the outline for the entire book. Therefore, middle of that paragraph, Acts is an historical account of believers' obedience to the mission in the first century. A review of the content of Acts reveals that this mission was not carried out merely by a collection of individuals. But as we're going to see through the corporate collective work of local churches. All right. In addition to those proofs of the primacy of the local church. You have the way the New Testament is structured. The content of New Testament material that, material that pertains to this age is addressed primarily to local churches and the pastors of local churches. Have you ever considered that? That the bulk of your New Testament is are letters that are written to local churches or to leaders of those local churches. Timothy, two letters to him. One to Titus, but then you've got two letters to the local church in the city of Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. Likewise, Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians. Likewise, the Roman letter. Likewise, the church at Ephesus. The church is in Galatia, in Colossae, in Philippi, and on it goes. This, so this stuff that we read all the time, we need to remember that this stuff was written to churches. And leaders of churches. And then you have the term itself, ecclesia, which is translated church in your New Testament. The Greek word translated church is ecclesia, or it means called out assembly. A popular and deep-rooted notion advocates that the work of the mission is carried out strictly on an individual level, that is the universal church, just by Christians doing their thing. The local church then is devalued by some as a man-made organization. Now, you hear this sometimes, don't you? You know, I don't believe in organized religion. You know, you guys know what I've told you what I say. You know, join us, we're not organized. (laughs) You'll love us, we're not organized. As if 
I don't believe in organized religion as if some guys got together and just sort of made this up. But the local church was not made up by any person or man. The local church is God's institution. Marriage wasn't made up by man. Marriage was given by God. It's a God-ordained institution. Same thing is true for the church, including the local church. The local church is sometimes, bottom of that page, devalued as a man-made organization. Here's an example. Here's uh, Louis Schaefer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary. Now, let me just pause before I you know, give this negative quote from Schaefer that I benefit uh, from Schaefer's books and from books written by a lot of guys over the years from Dallas Seminary, okay? <laughs> because what you guys always do is every time I quote somebody, you go, all right, he goes on the bad list. Or if I quote someone favorably, he's on the good list. Okay, here's the thing. There's almost, there very rarely is there a complete bad list and a complete good list. There's just people who say stuff, some of which is right and some that's wrong. And you gotta discern the difference. So almost nobody, including any of us, are not completely right. The Lord will correct us at the big screen on the judgment, okay? So it doesn't help if you say, hey, is this a good guy? Now, if the person has horns and a pitchfork, I will tell you. Put him on your bad list. Joel Osteen goes on your bad list. Joyce Meyer is on your bad list, okay? So I can go on a roll of a lot of people who are on the bad list, okay? But so Dallas Seminary has been a a great help. Um, I've got a couple of commentaries on my shelf that are called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's just two volumes, one devoted to the Old Testament, one devoted to the New Testament. And those two volumes were written entirely by faculty from Dallas Seminary. And I find it, for the most part, to be very helpful. All right, but this is what Schaefer said. No responsibility of service is imposed on the church per se. Service, like the gifts of the Spirit by whom service is wrought, is individual. The common phrase, the church's task, is therefore without biblical foundation. Oh, yikes. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying we collectively don't have a task. You've got a task individually, but we don't have one together. And if you look at, if you look at the history of Dallas Seminary, you, as a result of that, from the very beginning, you've had then lots of people that have gone out and launched parachurch organizations. Because of that notion. So para-church, para means beside the church. They're not the church, they're beside the church. They're outside the church. And you've got all kinds of them. Now, they may do very good work. In fact, a lot of them do very good work. So again, that's not, they're on the bad list, they're awful. I'm not saying that. But that all is launched out of this notion. That the work of ministry just goes on through individuals kind of doing their own thing, sort of lone ranger Christians doing their thing. Not through the church, not under the auspices of the church. Top of page 18. Many today have a preoccupation with the church as the universal body, to the exclusion of the local church. The church does indeed, as I've said earlier, have a universal aspect, but overemphasis on it does not account for the fact 
that of the 114 occurrences of the term ecclesia in the New Testament, about 99 are clear references to the local church. And then of the remaining 15, I told you it was about 10 that refer to the universal church, and then there's just a handful that just refer to a called-out group that's not a religious body at all. Just uh, In fact, in Acts chapter 19, the word ecclesia is used of a riot, <laughs> a mob. And they were called out because some guys literally called them out and said, let's riot. So it was a called out assembly. So clearly, the latter is the emphasis of the New Testament. In fact, it can be said that the New Testament perspective is that the universal body of Christ is always manifest through local assemblies of believers. And then in addition to all of that, you have page 18, the ministry pattern of the Apostle Paul. And back on page 14, we had given this long quote from Ephesians 3 where Paul wrote that and he says, this is the ministry that Christ gave to me to explain to you the administration, the dispensation of God's grace in this age. And his intent is that now through the church. So this is a special commission that God has given to me, Paul, and that I'm passing on to you. And then and this Paul who wrote that was sent out by the Lord on missionary journeys, sent out, as we're going to see, to establish churches. So you see the importance of the local church in the ministry of Paul. As the first century church fulfilled the biblical mission, the biblical narrative followed the ministry of the great apostle. His work provides a model, a paradigm for the ministry of the church today, and it can be summarized this way. The local church is the source of, of the biblical mission. Now, where do we see that? Acts chapter 13, you see that quoted there. In Acts chapter 13, the church, local church in a city called Antioch, gathers and they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas as an act of commissioning them to go on this missionary journey. The church at Antioch placed their hands on Saul before he started going by Paul. If you want to know why that is, I will tell you. Talk to me later. And then sent them off. So the local church was the source of this mission. And then the local church is the means of the mission. The local church supported Paul's work. He reported his progress back to it and received his support from it. So Acts 14, after... Paul and Barnabas have gone. They visited several cities. And if you read those two chapters, Acts 13 and 14, you see that as they visited those cities, they planted, started churches there. They preached the gospel. People came to Christ. They gathered them in local assemblies. And a church was established in those cities. And then you get to the end of chapter 14. He is now reporting. They are reporting back to the church that sent them, Antioch. And it says they gathered the church at Antioch together and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And the support came through the churches as he went out on these journeys. And you see an example of that in one of the letters he wrote to one of those churches, the church at Philippi. We have Philippians 4 here for you. And he says, it was good for you to share in my troubles. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am deeply amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. 
They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You know, that last verse, verse 19, my God will supply all your needs. That's one of those that we put on needlepoint, right? God will supply all your needs. But, and, and that's all true, of course, in isolation. But the context of that is he's saying God's going to reward your generosity. God's going to bless your generosity to the mission here. And their generosity was they helped Paul. The church did collectively in his work. So the local church was the source, the means, and the church was the end. That is, they're commissioned to go out, but they're not commissioned to go out only to preach the gospel and see people saved. Now, that sounds bad when I say that. Only to see people saved, as if that's not important. That's enormously important. And in fact... Gospel work cannot happen unless the gospel is preached and people are converted. So that's the beginning of it, but it's not the end of it. The end of it is that those people who are converted are gathered into churches. That's what we mean by saying the church is the end. That was the purpose. As Paul gained converts to Christ, the clear objective was the establishment of new local churches. Acts 14 again. They preached the good news in Derby, and won a large number of disciples. And then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Now, let me just stop here. There are churches in these cities because they're heading back now. They're heading back to the church that they came from at the beginning of chapter 13. They've stopped in these cities of Derby and Iconium and Lystra and even the Antioch that's referred to here. It's a different Antioch than the one they left. So they've got these four cities, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and a second town called Antioch. They've gone to these four cities and they've established churches in them. But not only have they established churches, it says they appointed elders in each church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So a church sent them out. The churches supported them in their work. And the end game of their work was churches. That's why we say it's the source, the means, and the end. If you look at page 19, and we got to quit. That can all be documented and has been documented by people smarter than me. How do you find people smarter than me? Pretty much talk to anybody. And this guy, David Hesselgrave, has written a book called Planting Churches Cross-Culturally. And in his book, he has this chart. Now, I apologize for the poor quality of the text there. In fact, for number one, you can't even see what's, what's there. But, but number one should say the gospel preached or the gospel proclaimed. Right, you know, I take that back. I'm sorry. It's the, uh, it's the missionaries commissioned. That's the first thing. The missionaries are commissioned. The missionaries are sent out. They're commissioned. That's the first thing that happens. That's what you saw in Acts chapter 13. 
So Acts 13 and 14, you see the pattern of source means an end. Now, you might rightly object, and you would be right to object. You say, okay, that's what they did. How is that a pattern? That's only one time. But if you read then chapters 16, 17, and 18, guess what you see? You see the same pattern. So if it happens once, you don't have a pattern. But every time Paul goes out, that's what he does. That's why David Hesselgrave then can document these 10 steps. And the first is that the missionaries are commissioned by the church, sent out by the church. And then, if you can read that, the audience, they get to a city and they contact the audience. That is, they find ways to get people together. And that's one of the first things you find them doing. Now, you remember reading through the book of Acts and seeing some of the ways that that would happen? Paul would sometimes, he would often go to a synagogue in in a particular city. Because that was a ready-made place for him to go and proclaim the Messiah. But he would sometimes go to the marketplace uh, and proclaim. That's where there are people there, at the marketplace. Uh, The Bible tells us in Acts 19 that in the city of Ephesus, he actually rented a lecture hall. The lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he would hold forth there. But he would contact the audience in various ways. And having done that, then number three is the gospel is preached. The gospel is communicated. And then people are converted and they're confirmed in their faith and, and, and on it goes. Okay, So we'll have to pick it up. We'll have to pick it up there next, next week. Let's ask the Lord to help us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this day and the opportunity to be instructed by you from your word as to what you are seeking to achieve for yourself, for your glory. And then, Lord, for us to hone in on how we are to participate and align our lives for that. Thank you, Lord, for instructing us. Thank you for not leaving us to grope in the darkness, but to know why we rise every day so that we can indeed get a life because we know our purpose and we know that right now counts forever. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week as we serve you. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.